0: Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and today I wanted to go through Daniel chapter 11 in light of some of the theories I proposed in the last podcast about uh, Bible prophecy as a part of that uh, seven-headed ten-horned beast series. Uh, Just a quick recap, the idea that I sort of landed on was that it probably is more like the traditional view, namely in, in Daniel chapter 7, those four beasts, the lion, the leopard, the... Uh, diverse beasts and the bear what did I miss the bear there Um, are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome and that Rome is a two-staged empire with the ten horns on its heads being a future ten nation situation of some kind in which the Antichrist comes out of that, he comes after them it says and he subdues or uh, somehow whatever that means he subdues three of those horns although we know that it doesn't mean that he takes away three of those horns. They still th- were interpreted, that those horns are interpreted as kings in that chapter, and those ten kings are mentioned in the book of Revelation, specifically given kind of a biography in, in Revelation 17, in which we're told that they not only exist in the end times, they exist all the way to the very end. They go to war with the returning Christ at Armageddon, on behalf of the antichrist so they're very loyal it does say that they they are in one mind and that they give their authority to the beast they um they are subservient to him to the very end so his subduing of the three kings is not a and and of course the the wording there in daniel 7 is extremely ambiguous no people don't really know what to do with that word he subdues three of them Uh, they got all kinds of different translations for it But I think the hypothesis today, and part of the reason we're going to go through Daniel 11, is because I think that that is what's being pictured here, that subduing of the three kings, as well as a whole lot of other things. You know, the the concept of the ten kings in the end times really is one of, I think, probably the major sort of marker that we can look at in terms of a geopolitical understanding of what the world might look like in the end times. There's not... There's not a whole lot like that in terms of Bible prophecy. There's not, you know, we could we could say for, you know, some people will say, well, there'll be a world government and all this stuff. You know, we can see the, those kind of signs. Well, I would say not really. I mean, you have to take into account this chapter in which the Antichrist, by my count, there's at least four military campaigns here by the Antichrist in which he's consolidating power. So the Antichrist needs to be on. So the earth and its borders, you know, are going to be different from the moment the Antichrist comes on the scene until he is done. He's going to change in the way that a lot of these great, uh, great in the sense of you know powerful kings have changed the borders of the world. So to say that a world government existing means that the antichrist will just come over and take it over. That's to not understand Daniel 11. He is a man of war who is like the antichrist who can make war with him, they say in the book of Revelation. So, okay. So, I'm going to go through Daniel 11. We're going to see what we can see about it. There's a lot of things to talk about. There's certainly no way I'm going to be able to do like an exegetical treatment of Daniel 11 by any stretch of the imagination. Don't expect that. I'm mostly going to be shooting from the hip. I certainly have notes, but but it's not going to be that because Daniel 11 is there's nothing like it. It is it is one of the most detailed prophecies ever, ever, period, full stop. From 11.1 1 to verse 35 or so, it's just one of the most densely packed prophecies about a period in history that covers about 300 years. And it's just so intense. I mean, every line is packed with something that happened. Every pivot of history during that 300 or so year period, this thing happened, and this thing. Well, I guess you could go further than 300 years if you count the first couple verses, but we'll talk about that in a minute. The main period that I'm talking about is sometimes called the Wars of the Successors, that is Alexander the Great's successors, the four generals that uh, his kingdom was sort of divided uh, amongst. And the wars of his his successors are sometimes called the Wars of the Diadochi, the descendants of those four original generals battle it out, trying to, you know, really, actually the battles kind of end up being between two of the main ones, that is uh, Ptolemy and, and the Ptolemaic dynasty and the Seleucid dynasty, the Ptolemaic being sort of Egypt and the Seleucid and some North African countries as well, and the North uh, King of the North is the Seleucid dynasty, which is what we might think of as like part of uh, Turkey and a lot of the lands to the east, you know, uh, Babylon and Iran and that kind of thing. But they were battling mainly the King of the North and the South were the ones that ended up being the, the stars of this 35 or so verses or so, and it's just intrigue, and it's deception, and it's wars, and it's this battle, and this failed battle, and this uh, political marriage, and weird meeting that just falls apart. It's, it's all these just intricate details that are also completely true in history. So commentators at this point in their commentaries really turn into historians And I know some listeners of this program know I kind of poke fun of that sometimes with Bible commentators when they rely too heavily on history books. Sometimes, like in this chapter, it's absolutely warranted. There's nothing else you can do. This is so dense of a prophecy. There's nothing to talk about except for how that was fulfilled in history, which it was. And you know it was because of the uh, critical scholars. The critical scholars are the ones that you know, don't really believe in supernatural stuff. They don't believe in prophecy. So when they're confronted with Daniel 11, they have to say that it was written um, after the fact. They recognize that it's just too accurate to say anything except for, well, this had to have been written after these events. It's just too accurate. And it's interesting that they date this uh, who, this chapter based entirely on that because as we're going to see around verse 36... This becomes about, not Antiochus, which is a descendant of one of these generals uh, many years later, uh, but about the Antichrist in the end times. So the events that follow verse 36 don't apply to anything in history. So these these critical scholars who, on the one hand, say, well, this was written after the fact, and then all of a sudden he's talking about things that definitely didn't happen in history. So they say, well, that's when it w- must have been written. So that's around the Maccabean revolt, sort of intertestamental period. They say it must have been written there. And then this author just sort of started guessing about the future after that, uh, because it still remains that same kind of intricate, then this thing happened, and then this thing happened, and then this thing happened. But now it's talking about events that haven't happened yet. So that's what how the critical scholars uh, date this. So that, that's that's basically how critical scholarship uh, works in general. I'm not going to go through all the details about which biblical events in Daniel chapter 11 correspond to which historical events. You can pretty much go to any commentator for the same information about that. Uh, there's a few things I did want to point out. Uh, twice in these, uh, these verses, marriage alliances are mentioned, uh, different marriage alliances for different reasons. But I think it's interesting because, of course, they are trying to make this uh, this separate forms of Alexander's kingdom, which has been broken up, They're trying to different ways. Obviously, wars are the main way, but they also try alliances to try to make it work, you know, to try to make it one empire again. And though I don't think it has specific reference, uh, intended possibly reference to Daniel chapter two, I think it's important that we understand that though that's a dual prophecy, probably in Daniel two about the uh, two halves of the last empire and I would say it's a dual prophecy of the near aspect, being the 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 old Roman Empire trying to cleave itself together with marriage alliances, uh, but failing here. We see marriage alliances tried but failed as well, meaning at least in the same book that is the book of Daniel, we see marriage alliances as an, att- as an attempt to cleave together two uh, sides of a, in this case, former empire. All right, so let's just jump into the prophecy from our perspective part of this. And I think it starts to be relevant around verse Thirty-one. This is definitely at this point talking about Antiochus. I will submit that from, and I'm going to read 31 through 35. I think this whole passage is definitely talking about Antiochus. Absolutely. But I also think that this is where it starts to fade in. That is to say that all these things I think can probably apply to the Antichrist as well. So if you look at it, Think of it as a crossfade in a in video editing or, or a movie. You know, when it starts to fade in before one scene turns into the other scene, there's a fade aspect, and I think the verses I'm about to read are that fade where this section can apply to both. It definitely applies to Antiochus, and it probably uh, applies to the Antichrist as well. It says... His forces will rise up and profane the fortified sanctuary, stopping the daily sacrifice. In its place, they will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Then with smooth words, he will defile those who have rejected the covenant. But the people who are loyal to their God will act valiantly. These who are wise among the people will teach the masses. However, they will fall by the sword and by the flame, and they will be imprisoned and plundered for some time. When they stumble, they will be granted some help but many will unite with them deceitfully. Even some of the wise will stumble, resulting in their refinement, purification, and cleansing until the time of the end, for it is still for the appointed time. So for my brief survey of commentators on this point, it seems like most of the conservative commentators who do believe that the Antichrist is in view in the next series of verses tend to downplay the Antichrist's uh, and future involvement in these verses and and and. Tend to focus in their commentaries about how these events applied to Antiochus and his persecution of the Jews, because that's definitely true of Antiochus. So, Antiochus uh, tried; he didn't have all that much success with his wars when he finally got the the reins of the throne. He had some success in Egypt; in con- he was from the north, right? So he conquers Egypt, a little parts of Egypt, and uh, has some success. But then they kind of revolt and take it back. And he tries again, but he doesn't have any success that time. And Right about this time is when Rome starts to become a big deal. They're not quite Rome that we think of today, but they're starting to be. And they just won a victory with Greece, which after that, Rome was pretty much going to be unstoppable. And that's when they confront Antiochus, who is causing this trouble, trying to fight these wars in Egypt. You know, causing trouble for, for, for Rome, who relied on Egypt for its grain. So they send this army to confront Antiochus and be like, hey, you're going to stop your war with Egypt now. And Antiochus is like, who are you guys? What are you going to do? Tell me to stop my war with Egypt. I'm Antiochus Epiphanes. And that's when the whole they draw a circle around him in the sand and said, no, you're going to give us an answer before you leave this circle. And Antiochus is like, okay, I'll stop the wars. And so, of course, he goes back to his homeland on his way. Uh, and that's when he goes through, through Israel, he... Uh, profanes the the stops the daily sacrifice. They uh, do a lot of things. It's a little ambiguous about exactly the nature of it. He sets up an altar to Zeus. Some say in the temple, sacrifices a a pig on the altar. Some will say some different kind of things. But certainly stops the daily sacrifice. The the so-called abomination of desolation. Huge persecution of the Jews. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews are killed. At this point, he does have a lot of intrigue. He he convinces a lot of people to basically worship the Greek gods that he worships and, uh, and, and to abandon uh, Judaism. And so there's a lot of that going on. Some of that is being um, uh, mentioned there. This uh, idea about the people who are loyal to their God will act valiantly. Those who are wise among the people will teach the masses. And these other phrases like that are applied to the Maccabean revolt, which is uh, the, the reason that the Maccabees began to this uprising in in Judea was to throw off the yoke of Antiochus was as a result of things like this abomination of desolation and this persecution that followed it. And so a lot of commentators go through the intricate details about they were given some help here and they were imprisoned and plundered. So it it applies. And a lot of the information that we have about that is from the uh, book of the, the, the first and second Maccabees, um, So that's interesting. But as I say, I think that this does apply to that. But I do think that this also applies to the persecution that will happen after the future version of the abomination of desolation in the end times. Um, So again, so verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every deity, and he will utter presumptuous things against the God of gods. He will succeed until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been decreed must occur. He will not respect the God of his fathers, not even the God loved by women. He will not respect any God. He will elevate himself above them all. What he will honor is a god of fortresses, a god his fathers did not acknowledge. He will honor with gold, silver, valuable stones, and treasured commodities. He will attack mighty fortresses aided by a foreign deity. To those who recognized him, he will grant considerable honor. He will place them in authority over many people. He will parcel out out land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will attack him. Then the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and a large armada of ships. He will invade lands, passing through them like an overflowing river. Then he will enter the beautiful land. Many will fall, but these will escape Edom, Moab, and the Ammonite leadership. He will extend his power against other lands. The land of Egypt will not escape. He will have control over the hidden stores of gold and silver, as well as the treasures of Egypt. Libyans and Ethiopians will submit to him. But reports will trouble him from the east and the north, and he will set out in a tremendous rage to destroy and wipe out many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas toward the beautiful holy mountain, but he will come to his end with no one to help him. At that time, the great prince who watches over your people will arise, There will be a time of distress unlike any from the nation's beginning up until that time. At that time, your people and all those names found written in the book will escape. Many who have slept in the dust of the ground will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting abhorrence. In case you're wondering, I read a little bit into Daniel chapter 12 there because they are connected by that phrase, at that time, Michael, the great prince, etc., Also, in case you're wondering, I'm reading from the Net Bible. I know there's some odd phrases there, so people are probably wondering what that's about. All right, so I'm going to cherry-pick about the things I want to talk about today, and some of it will springboard from a new commentary that I have been reading from uh, J. Paul Tanner. J. Paul Tanner just put out a commentary uh, for the Evangelical Exegetical commentary uh, on Daniel, J. Paul Tanner is a guy I've quoted a number of times, particularly his papers on, um, oh, he has done a paper on Ezekiel 38 and 39 that I reference a lot of times. He has done, I think he's one of the foremost experts probably on Daniel 11 to some extent. He's written um, that paper that I've referenced also called Daniel's King of the North, Do We Owe Russia an Apology, arguing that the King of the North can't be Russia, as was proposed in the 70s by Al Lindsay because uh, the King of the North all throughout this chapter means the uh you know the Seleucid Empire which is a coalition of Arab countries it just makes no sense for it to be Russia all of a sudden and he goes through that in the paper so anyway he's a guy that I've uh followed his career for a while I've had some correspondence with him actually um anyway he um he has written this just huge commentary. So I'm going to talk about some things about that. One of the notable things about that is that he endorses the idea that the Antichrist will present himself as a Jewish Messiah. He argues, as I do, uh, that here he he, ar- he argues actually, well, not just because of verses like uh, he will not respect the God of his fathers. He does argue that that means he probably will be ethnically Jewish as well. But his argument for that is uh, is is much more uh, robust than just that that phrase. But I thought I would mention that. But I also wanted to mention where he and I disagree on that point, because I think it's worth mentioning. So he takes the position that the Antichrist will present himself as the Jewish Messiah up until the point of the midpoint, in which case uh, he will metaphorically sort of take off the mask and say i hate jews now and i'm actually against it and that his abomination of desolation will be much more in line with what uh, antiochus did that is put a altar of zeus up or or you know something something else and 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 destroy the sanctuary or at least uh, defile it by something else that is to say that he will then not pretend to be the Messiah anymore. He will pretend to just hate the Jews. And that is a theory that I wish that I could support because I would have a lot less, uh, a lot less uh, trouble uh, convincing people of this because that's something, as you can see here, he, he, he gets behind. And I think a lot of people get behind that. It's when I suggest that the abomination of desolation that the Antichrist does is in keeping with his claims to be the Jewish messiah that is that it is the next logical step for a messianic pretender to do that is to say do the things that Paul says he will do sit in the temple declaring himself to be god is the thing that the messiah jesus will do in the millennial kingdom and and presumably the eternal kingdom and in, in the and the new jerusalem as well that is to say that he will sit in the temple declaring himself to be God. That's a messianic thing to do. Indeed, I would say that Daniel 11, 40 through 45 is also a messianic thing to do. That is, that is uh, consolidating the lands from Assyria, the king of the north, to Egypt, the king of the south, and warring and conquering those lands is also a necessary component of uh, any messianic pretender. Because... They, if they intend to actually fulfill the, you know, pretend to fulfill the prophecies in the Bible about the Messiah, well, then you have to create greater Israel. Greater Israel is the uh, lands that were given to uh, Israel, but they never actually took those lands because they disobeyed God about who to uh, conquer and so on and so forth. But, in the millennial passages, Isaiah and so forth talk about how from Assyria to Egypt, it will all be Israel. They're referencing these, these, these greater Israel borders, which the Antichrist here takes. Remember the reason that the Jewish people rejected Jesus is because he didn't war. He didn't Defeat the Romans. He didn't make Jerusalem the capital city of the world. He didn't conquer Greater Israel. They had good biblical reason to say, "Well, you're not the Messiah because you didn't do that." They didn't understand God's plan in salvific, this salvific uh, uh, coming, the first coming of Christ, and because of that, they rejected Christ. They rejected Christ for other reasons, their hearts mostly, but this is ostensibly why they would have said that they rejected him, probably. Uh, But my point is, the Antichrist does appear to do that. So there is a distinction between saying that the midpoint is just him taking off the mask and saying, I hate Jews now, and the midpoint being a time when he says, look, I am the Messiah, I am God, follow me and kill all those who will not follow me. That is to say, the Great Tribulation, which happens after the midpoint. It falls in line with, I think, what's even happening there uh, between Daniel 11 Forty-five and and twelve one, in which he appears to die, but then the midpoint happens. Uh, so he pitches his royal tents between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. But he will come to his end, and no one will help him. You know, read commentaries about that. J. Paul Tanner is a good example. He just doesn't know what to do with the next line, which says, "At that time, Michael the great prince who watches over your people will arise." Then there will there will be a time of distress unlike any from the nation's beginning up into that time, because he knows that that's talking about the midpoint at that time, at what time, the time when he comes to his end. So what is he going to do with that? And of course, what you do with that is say, well, that's when the antichrist gets this mortal head wound appears to, uh, that's what of course revelation is all about. Those many instances saying, Hey, everybody marvels at the beast because he has this wound by the sword, but lives this mortal wound, uh, but lives. And once his resurrection happens, is when he goes all into I told you I was God, now you know I'm God, will you please worship me in the temple? And that's when, of course, the time of distress, unlike any other, which is in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, linked to the abomination of desolation. So we know that this is connected because of that chronological phrase. At that time, Michael, the great prince who watches over your people, will arise in a time of distress. And of course, the the rising of Michael who is the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, which is tied to this exact same event, that is to say, the midpoint, the abomination of desolation. Once he's removed is when what happens? Not a good thing. Michael doesn't arise to fight anybody. If he does, as I say, he's doing a terrible job because that's when the greatest time of persecution that's ever happened before will begin. So what's exactly he doing? uh michael's no slouch if he wanted to protect as he could he certainly throws uh, satan himself out of heaven in in, uh revelation 12 which is also tied to this event you can actually find that the revelation 12 passages mentioning the three and a half year period so this is all tied to michael standing up it's tied to the restrainer it's tied to daniel uh 12 1 as we're talking about here anyway i'm getting off the subject Another thing I wanted to get into, uh, kind of springboarding from this commentary from J. Paul Tanner is the King of the North and King of the South theory, because there's been an update on that, in that J. Paul Tanner appears to have, um leaned a different direction than he did before on this point and I think it's fascinating to understand why he did it and different things so we're going to get into the details on this and this gets pretty technical and um, so I I apologize in advance so I'm just going to try my best here to explain this because it is kind of complicated so you know, that transition phrase that or verses that we talked about when it starts talking about his forces will rise up and profane the fortified sanctuary, stopping the daily sacrifice in its place. It will set up an abomination that causes desolation that, that, that those verses, which can apply both to the Antichrist and to Antiochus, I would argue. Um, so there's that sort of fade phrase. And then in verse 36, it starts being only the Antichrist language, which is agreed upon by every conservative commentator, but by verse 36, during even that, f- that fade period, it doesn't really talk about the king of the north or in the south or anything, because it's kind of almost not even about that at that point. It's talking about the abomination of desolation and this great persecution that follows it, the king of the north and the south. They're not even in that. And similarly, when it moves on to just the Antichrist, it's still not talking about the king of the north and south anymore. But now we've introduced to a guy that definitely isn't Antiochus anymore. And it starts off uh, like this. Then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every deity. He will utter presumptuous things against the God of gods. All Antichrist stuff, right? So it talks about what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to foreign deity, God of gods, honor with gold, silver, et cetera, et cetera. And then in verse 40, it says this. So we're all deep into the Antichrist idea right now. He's going to do this. He's going to God of gods, God of fortresses. He's going to do this. He, 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 he. Verse 40 says, at the time of the end... The king of the south will attack him. Then the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and a large armada of ships. He will invade lands. He will do this. He will do that. So it's all about. It introduced him in verse 36. Is the, the then the king will do as he pleases, and from then on, it's pretty much he, him, he, he, he. So he's clearly the focus of that. What I'm describing is the three king theory that the him, the king that's introduced. It doesn't say king of the north or south. It just says the king. Uh, in verse 36, and then following the he's after that, that it never changes. It's all the Antichrist. So there are three kings in view in verse 40 when it says, At the time of the end, the king of the t- south will attack him, the Antichrist. Then the king of the north will storm against him, the Antichrist, with chariots. Now, this is, I dare say, the most natural reading. I'm going to go through the arguments of why people believe this is the most natural reading. It is certainly the majority view. Uh, most of the conservative scholars uh, view that. I know I'm sort of leading the witness a little bit there. There are certainly uh, good scholars on both sides, but it is pretty incontrovertible that the, the majority do believe in the three king theory. And there's good reason for that, but when we get into the other view first. The two king theory is that the king... Is, should always be understood as the king of the north, okay? So you would read verse 40 like this. At the time of the end, the king of the t- south will attack him, that is the king of the north. North. At the time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north. Then the king of the north will storm against him, but now we change him to the king of the south. So so should read, according to this view, like this. At the time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north. Then the king of the north will storm against the king of the south. So they've changed, or they believe that it is two kings. Um, now, I, I encourage you to read Daniel eleven forty, and try to understand the first hymn as the king of the north and the second hymn as the king of the south. I don't want to disparage it too much because it is grammatically possible um, for that to mean that. It would be awkward, everybody would admit, it would be an awkward way to do it. It would be a way that is not done anywhere else in this chapter, certainly, uh, and maybe not even in the entire Bible, but it is certainly possible. You know, you would ask, what does this mean? What 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 relevance does this have about things? And I would say not that much on on the one hand, um, I was first introduced to the two king theory because of Joel Richardson. Um, now, Joel Richardson, I got him in the debate to, to actually admit that regardless of the two king theory or the three king theory, the Antichrist, which he thinks will be a Muslim, is attacking Muslim countries, certainly Ethiopia, Libya. He's trying to attack mortal enemies of Israel, Edom, Moab, uh, but they're escaping from his hands and, and Jordan there, but he's trying to. I'd never heard Joel admit that before, but in the debate he admitted it. So the only... Joel likes the two-king theory, I, I believe, because he he has a theory that the Antichrist will be uh, from uh, uh, Turkey, basically, Assyria. Uh, so... In his view, he kind of needs the Antichrist to be the King of the North. As we're going to look at, I'm going to look at J. Paul Tanner's arguments because J. Paul Tanner sort of has shifted his uh, ideas about this, and I think it helps to show why people believe what they do about this because I would argue that the two-king theory is all about presuppositions. All the pro-arguments for the two-king theories are stuff that people, you know, think should be true about the Bible. All the arguments for the three-king theory are Arguments, things that you would argue in any other context. So let me show you what I mean. And these are uh, straight from J. Paul Tanner's uh, uh, commentary. And his notes on this are incredibly valuable because, number one, as I said, he may be one of the foremost authorities on Daniel 11 based on some of the other research he's done, etc. But it's also important because he is now, I think he said, um, you know, he now thinks he's... However, the arguments, uh, he's leaning more towards the two king theory now, which is the the theory that I don't hold, right? So he's leaning that way, he says in his commentary now. And he he used to and has written about the prose for the three king theory before. Okay, so in this commentary, he gives a pros and cons list that you can really sink your teeth into because here's a guy that doesn't want to disparage the fact that he used to believe the three king theory, which I don't agree with, or which I do agree with, but now he believes the two king theory, which, or leans that way anyway, he says. Um, so he's going to give a pretty detailed pros and cons list. This is not going to be a pros and cons list that uh, is <laughs> uh, hiding the, the, the truth in any way, shape or form because he wants to give a really good reason why he used to believe it and why he believes it now. So it's basically perfect for trying to figure out which one is really right. So he says, and these are all his pros for the Three King Theory, he says... The way in which the kings are introduced when in conflict... uh, I should just read it here. The way in which the kings of the north and the south are introduced in verses 11 and 25 when in conflict with one another is distinct from the way they are referred to in verse 40. In the earlier verses, the wording is clear as to who is invading who and who is being attacked without any kind of ambiguity that we find in verse 40. So he's basically saying, there's just nothing like this. Why why would it say it with this kind of ambiguity if it just means that the king of the sword... Several, several times these wars... I mean, this whole chapter you know, 30 some odd verses of the king of the north and the south doing one thing or another to each other. I should read just a couple of these verses so you get the context. Let me just pull out some things here. The king of the north will advance against the empire of the king of the south. The king of the north will be enraged and march out to fight against the king of the north. Or the king of the south will be enraged and march out to fight the king of the north. When the army is taken away, the king of the south will become arrogant. It always mentions them with their titles. The king of the north did this and et uh, he continues, uh, his second reason is if the author intended the king in verse 36 to mean the king of the north, it's quite remarkable that the text identified him only as the king and not to be the not the fuller descript, uh, uh, designation. In the earlier part of the chapter, tracing the hostilities between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, verses 5 through 35, the word king is mentioned 14 times. Everywhere else, the king is always specified as either the king of the north or the king of the south, except verse 27, which refers to both kings. The shortened reference, the king, in verse 36 is quite eye-catching, and it stands in sharp contrast with the full title of the king of the north found in verse 40, almost suggesting that these might be two different persons. I would say it like this. If you understand that there is a jump forward in time, Exactly like was introduced a few chapters earlier in Daniel nine twenty-seven about the 70th week prophecy, which starts off, he will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will bring a sacrifice and offerings to a halt, literally talking about the same thing. Read commentaries about that verse. No one has any idea where this he comes from. The critical scholars have a field day with it because he doesn't apply to anything. It just pops out of nowhere. And all of a sudden we're talking about this thing that this abomination of desolation midway through the 70th week of Daniel and this he confirms the covenant. Where did the he come from? Well, isn't it interesting that in Daniel chapter 11, it's the same problem at the exact same point. The abomination of desolation event is when this King and the he shows up to do his thing. So if you understand that point, then this is a completely natural reading. That is, to, and of course, J. Paul Tanner understands that point as well. My point is that if you understand that a similar thing, as in Daniel 9:27, can happen, that all of a sudden we are the the Antichrist kind of pops up out of nowhere, and now we're talking about the Antichrist, not anybody else, but the Antichrist. Then the grammar naturally follows. So there's two people that don't like this the first people are the critical scholars that want this to still be about the king of the north and king of the south that's where this i think kind of came from where they don't see this as a future thing so they had to find out a way to make the he be the king of the south and trade that he over here for the king of the north to make that happen i think people like joel richardson do it for for another reason that is to say they want the king of the north to be um uh, 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 you know the Antichrist, and and for him to be a Muslim and that in that kind of thing. So there's different reasons people do it, but I think that the summation of the arguments here is that these are good arguments that it would be unprecedented. It would be an unprecedented way to talk about this uh, uh, if the uh, if it wasn't true. So let's look at J. Paul T- Tanner's arguments for the pro two king theory. Now he says first Antiochus. The type of the Antichrist was portrayed as the King of the North in verses 21-35, through and one would logically expect the antitype, the Antichrist, to be cast in the same mold rather than be found fighting against an unknown King of the North. So he's saying since Antiochus was a type of the Antichrist, or he is a type of the Antichrist, and Antiochus is the King of the North, when the Antichrist now fully transitions to talking about the Antichrist, he should just be the King of the North too. And there's some logic to that, of course. But it also presumes, and I think he does that with some of these other pros, too. He's he's very set that um, the rest of these wars of the Antichrist, the time of the end, the king of the south will attack him, the king of the north will storm against him, the chariots and horsemen, the beautiful land and Ammon, and all this stuff that happens in the end times, that everybody knows happens in the end times, is essentially sort of a thematic conclusion to the wars of the Diadochi. In other words, he wants to kind of wrap it up in a bow and have... The king of the north and south sort of fi- finalize it all up that's why we were talking about it in the first place as opposed to i would argue well no this is a different thing this is now that we've transitioned to the antichrist and talking about events in the end times though they might be similar and sort of vague geographical areas we're not talking about the seleucid empire and the ptolemaic empire anymore and we're not talking about the exact same geographical areas and we're not and you can't copy and paste antiochus on the antichrist just because he's a type um, that's essentially Joel Richardson's main argument for his Islamic Antichrist too. That is to say, something like Antiochus was a type of Antichrist, and Antiochus was, although he was a Greek, uh, he or you know came from his, his the King of the North is essentially Assyria. So therefore, the Antichrist will come from from Syria, and I would argue and have argued in my book uh, the Islamic Antichrist Debunked. Of course, he's got other arguments, all of which I talk about in that book, but. Um, but I argue against that particular theory, saying you can't, that's not how types work. You just don't get to say that, well, the king of Babylon and Isaiah and Ezekiel, the king of Tyre, those are obvious types of antichrist too. Uh, that doesn't mean that the antichrist is, is from Babylon and Tyre, and there's a type of antichrist in Pharaoh, is he from Egypt? You know, you, you just don't get to do that. And I would say that because also, in addition to that, because of these wars uh, 1140 through 45 are fundamentally different too. Everybody admits that we're talking about a different deal now. The, these kings of the east and north, nobody knows what's going on there. They think it's China or something, but it definitely doesn't fall into anything else that was happening in this early part of the chapter. So to say now, so the, in like in Daniel nine twenty-seven, when we switch to the Antichrist and obviously eschatological events, we're now in a different context. I mean, it's a similar context but it's a different context so his argument here that that because uh their types and Antiochus was the king of the north therefore the antichrist should be the king of the north it's not i'm not disparaging it as a bad argument it's just a presupposition his second argument for the two king theory is that there is no emphasis in verses 40 through 45 on the antichrist attacking northward whereas there is significant emphasis upon him attacking southward The question is significant. Why does the text only emphasize the evasion and defeat of the King of the South? Uh, Rumors far of the North draw him back to Judah. They do not indicate that he attacks the King of the North. Okay, there's a lot of issues I take with this. The first is that it is a presupposition in that he presupposes that the King of the North is going to get attacked by the Antichrist, which is not what the text says. The text says the King of the North will attack him. And if you think that's weird, that the, uh, the Antichrist is on defense here, don't think it's weird because he agrees, as does everybody else, that the Antichrist is on defense against the king of the south. The king of the south will attack him and the king of the north will attack him. So so yeah, the, the Antichrist is the defender on this. He is being attacked by the king of the north and south. So for Tanner to say, well, I don't have any information about the Antichrist attacking the king of the north, is to presuppose that he knows that the Antichrist will attack the King of the North and therefore should be given details about that battle. Additionally, I think it does give some information about the King of the North situation when it concludes the King of the North will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and a large armada of ships. I mean, this isn't a hugely long section and for not a hugely long section, that's a pretty good amount of detail. I'm not sure how much more you would need, but probably more to the point, the reason I don't, consider this a good argument, is because of the structure and the way that it talks about which areas the Antichrist is attacking in this chapter. Let me try to explain this. It's a little bit complicated. So I'm just going to read it. At the time of the end, the king of the south will attack him. Then the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and large armada of ships. He will invade lands, passing through them like an overflowing river. So First of all, now that he goes on in the next verse, he will then enter the beautiful land. He's going to talk about Edom, Moab or whatever, but he concludes this king of the north, king of the south attacking him thing with, he will invade lands, passing through them like an overflowing river. Is this lands talking about him now going to the king of the south's land and the king of the north's land and invading them like an overflowing river? Or is this kind of a summary statement for the entire section 40 through 45 in which it's now going to talk about For example, the reports that trouble him from the east and the north, and he said that sets out and wipes them all out. Is that a summary statement passing through them like an overflowing river? It doesn't define what the lands are here. And I say it like that because then you could almost highlight this verse. Because it does this multiple times in these, in these uh, five verses. Let me read, continue to read. Then he will enter the beautiful land. Many will fall. We don't know what the many are there, uh, but th- these will escape. We are told the ones that will escape, Edom, Moab, and the Ammonite leadership, which we can presume then that the many are somehow like Edom, Moab, and the Ammonite leadership in some way. They try to escape. They do escape, uh, but he certainly was pursuing them. Anyway, we don't know who the many is, is my point there. He will then extend his power against other lands. Other lands? What are those other lands? The land of Egypt will not escape. So it's kind of the same sort of pattern there. Other lands, the corresponding with many, which is not defined. And then we're told the land of Egypt will not escape in that other land situation. It even continues in 44. But reports will trouble him from the east and the north. He will set out in a tremendous rage to destroy and wipe out many. So it is, there is so much ambiguity in this chapter about which lands he's invading. It's almost deliberately vague, it seems like, in in at least four instances about here. And even the instance where it might talk about um, this uh, King of the North battle more, it should have talked about the Egypt battle more in that context, because it doesn't, it it obviously shifts from 1140 to when it eventually picks up Egypt again. We're not even clear if that's a different instance or it's just more detail about the first instance. So so again, it's not a bad argument, but it's, I believe, fundamentally flawed. He's, he's wanting to know about, uh, uh, he's assuming that the Antichrist will attack Egypt and therefore, or r- rather attack Assyria. When it looks to me, and this is my theory about this, I believe that I believe, of course, the revert, I believe what J. Paul Tanner does, which is why I get frustrated sometimes with him, because it's like, man, if he could just plug a few more things in there, he wouldn't have so much trouble with a lot of this stuff. He has trouble with the idea of why would the King of the South and the King of the North be attacking the Antichrist? Well, in your theory, it makes perfect sense. Why would the Muslim world attack the Antichrist? Well, because he's claiming to be the Jewish Messiah. It's essentially filling, fulfilling the prophecies of the Islamic world which they see as the Dijal, they're going to go to war with him out of religious necessity. They believe that that they, in, in other words, the Islamic world will actually understand that the Antichrist is the Antichrist. I believe that this war, and it's so key to understand this section, that they are against him, that the Antichrist is playing defense here. And that's why it's so interesting when he completely defeats everybody, I believe, and remember what the what the result of this battle is. The result is he controls greater Israel. Everybody submits to him in the entire greater Israel after this. He sets up his royal tents in Jerusalem after this. Okay, so that's the result of this. If you put that into context of uh, uh, messianic expectations, what do you need to happen before you can set the Messiah up in the temple and declare himself to be God in terms of Isaiah and messianic expectations. Well, you need a Gog Magog war. This, to, to the Jewish mind, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is what we think of as the book of Revelation and Armageddon. They are expecting to see the events in Ezekiel 38 and 39 to be culminated with the Messiah and the restoration of Israel to greater Israel. Okay. And his last pro reason for the two king theory is that it would turn the kings of the North and South into allies against a common enemy. I've heard Joel uh, Richardson say this as well. He's like, how in the rest of this chapter, the king of the North and the king of the South were mortal enemies. so now they're both attacking the antichrist Again, it's just a, such a blatant presupposition that they think in the end times they know how it's all going to go because of their other theories that they can't imagine the Muslim world attacking the Antichrist because in their view it's not going to do that. But more to the point, with J. Paul Tanner, I think probably to be fair with Richardson too, is that in the earlier part of this chapter, the King of the North and the King of the South were battling. So now all of a sudden they're not battling and they're, you know, friends all of a sudden, and he concludes this. It's not really a point, but it, he says, he says, especially the emphasis in the text upon the pursuit and defeat of the, the King of the South would be the final, would be the final war between the Kings of the North and South. A struggle traced throughout the chapter, but now climaxed with the Antichrist himself as the final King of the North. So that's what I mean by he, he wants, his main reason is that he's presupposing this chapter has at its core a story of a King of the North and King of the South. And it it should have a nice ending wrapped in a bow in which one of them wins out. Um, as opposed to just a transition into now a future prophecy in which events are not based about the Ptolemies or the whatever, it doesn't need to, uh, resolve itself and and have a nice theme. All right. So to the final point of this podcast is about the potential for seeing, what the map might look like in the end times. And this is combined, and I think it works well with what I described in the previous podcast, which is to say that like the Roman Empire was the first and only empire to control the entire Mediterranean. You know, think of that today. It's Spain, it's France, it's Germany, it's Italy, it's Egypt, it's Libya, it's uh, whatever the west african countries are now but anyway they they controlled that whole that whole area israel and 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 everything else in the same way that will be the picture of the final antichrist empire that will be his revived roman empire in a sense um and i believe that while i don't know how many nations right now are bordering that it's probably close to 10 depending on how many many you count over there in israel and, and and lebanon and that kind of thing but I'm proposing that there will be 10 nations, basically the same amount, bordering that uh, Mediterranean, and that these wars of the Antichrist, with his somehow ability, he's going to have something to do with war. I, I mean, it says who can make war with the beast. There is something that he does that is just different with regard to warfare. In this uh, chapter, it does make mention of his martial ability, abilities as god of fortresses. So it's a thread that you can follow pretty easily. We certainly know he is a victorious warlord and he conquers a lot of nations. So that is, you know, people ask, well, is so-and-so the Antichrist or so-and-so? I can't say anybody's Antichrist unless I'm seeing some serious conquest of territories and we're actually given the names of the territories here. So to me, you know, the only way you could get around saying, well, so-and-so is the Antichrist, he just hasn't conquered these nations yet, is to say that this is all a picture of stuff that happens like after the midpoint. So we should expect, you know, some quote-unquote peace agreement or whatever beforehand. And I would submit that this quote-unquote peace agreement, which is not a necessarily a peace agreement, it is a covenant made with many, which necessarily starts the daily sacrifices. That's what Daniel nine twenty seven is saying, The sacrifices get stopped at the midpoint, they start at the beginning. It's that event, which is going to be so triggering to the Muslim world, which is going to cause the king of the south and king of the north to attack him. He's going to be able to play the victim. He's going to act like it's Gog Magog. He's going to restore all the lands uh, that was supposed to be given to Israel in in, in apparent fulfillment of the uh, messianic prophecies about Assyria and Egypt and how Israel will be extended its borders and Gog Magog, obviously. And all that is on the run up to the midpoint. In other words, this is the first thing that we're going to notice. And I don't think this 10 nation confederacy necessarily exists before these wars. I mean, a necessarily important part of wars is that borders change, especially wars in which there's an incredibly victorious warlord that can do anything that he wants to. You're going to see some borders change and some countries fall uh, after that. But the net result of that, I believe, is 10 kings. And it may, and it probably is 10 kings th- to start with, because I think you can make a case from Daniel 7 that they exist in some form before he arrives as the little horn. But he does subdue three of them. And I think verse, f- well, let's say 42 and 43 of this chapter are interesting in that regard. He says, It says, he will extend his power against other lands. The land of Egypt will not escape. He will have control over the hidden stores of gold and silver, as well as the treasures of Egypt. So he continues to talk about Egypt there. We're talking about Egypt and he's going to have control, I mean, over the gold and silver and their hidden treasures. So it sounds like he's got Egypt in his hand, right? In his attack, uh, he just totally subdues Egypt for sure. You know that because he's got control of their gold and silver and all the treasures. Uh, Then the next line, Libyans and Ethiopians will submit to him. Now, This submission is an interesting uh, word. Some verses say follow at his train or something like that. The word is something like to do with steps or walking. If I remember right, it basically is like a a processional walk that you would do when you conquer somebody. It has to do with submission. Um, It's an interesting concept that's not found too many other places. But basically, I think it kind of ties in to this weird concept of submission that's not fully defined, to the other weird concept of def- submission that's not really defined in Daniel 7, in which it's talking about the subdued or uh, uh, three kings. There's three of them here. They're being subdued uh, or, or submitted in this case. J. Paul Tanner actually mentions this theory in his uh, commentary, and he says it's uh, possible. Uh, the- I think he says theoretically possible, but there's no way to prove it. And I guess I would agree with that. There's no way for me to prove that. And he doesn't say anything negative about it or any arguments against it. He just just mentions it. And I would say, yeah, I think it's an interesting theory. I think it would make sense. And here I'm being a little presuppositional in terms of how I think this should go. But I do think it would help us because that three kings thing is not talked about anywhere else in the Bible. This gives us that sort of uh, clarity, that sort of A B thing that we can do to be more sure about what it means about that. So we don't have to guess too much and maybe have bad theories about it. And especially here because we'd be given actual names and essentially dates, if because I think you can actually make this to be when in terms of the 70th week of Daniel anyway. Um, So I think that's the main thing, uh the main theory that I wanted to say here that I think this is a picture of the subduing of three kings. And I think that the idea that Egypt still exists and Ethiopians and Libyans still exist but with submission inform the other problem about how these three kings can submit but still there be 10 all the way up to the very end at Armageddon when they you know they give their authority to the beast they're completely subservient to the Antichrist all the way up to the end there's 10 all the way through but yet he subdues them so if I was to guess what the end times would look like it would be a man uh, who, I think, probably has demonstrated to some degree that he is not able to be defeated in war. Something happens with that, I think, before this. Somehow or another, it is known that he has something that, that others can't defeat, maybe. And the reason I say it like that is because I feel like Israel would need some assurances to allow somebody to set up a the daily sacrifice to set up a temple in the daily sacrifice, which they know good and well will start world World War Three, and that's why I like uh, or, or I like the concept anyway of the idea that uh, who you know they worship the beast, saying who is like him, who can make war with him. That worship related to his warfare ability, who could make war with him, kind of informs that kind of idea that you would let a person do something you know would start World War III. You certainly want a temple to be put up. You want daily sacrifices to start. It's everything that you've ever wanted. You pray for it, whatever it is, two times a day or whatever the the, the idea is. Um, You want it, but you know World War III would break out. But if you're sure that this guy will protect you and you know he's got the ability to protect you, then it sort of makes sense of why they worship him and say, who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? But nevertheless, he does it. It does the thing that everybody knows it will do when they do it. That is, cause the Muslim world to attack him. They band together. They attack him. But it is, let's just say, not successful. It ends with an absolute submission of the entire Muslim world, as well as all of the Ten Kings, this new empire, uh, to him. He then sets up his royal tents. I believe he takes his army Uh, to the beautiful holy mountain, to Jerusalem. This is the final act of this. This is after the reports trouble him from the east and the north. He will set out in tremendous rage to destroy and wipe out many. I quite honestly don't know what that means. My suggestion is that it's something other and over and above the other things that are being talked about in the rest of this chapter, just because of the way it talks about it is different. You know, some people I think probably rightly do think about China or something else. There is a third party that the east and north, it says here in the net, I'm not sure where it's getting that. I've always heard it was just the east, but maybe there's a north aspect of it. I don't know. In any case, um, so somebody else tries as well, and they are wiped out. He says he goes out and wipes out many. And then he pitches his royal tents between the seas and the holy mountain, but he comes to his end. I believe he brings his armies. I don't think that he comes. My suspicion is he's not from Israel, that he comes from, my guess is Macedonia or Greece, somewhere around there. So his, his armies have been on the road, if you will, this whole time. So he brings his royal tents, his armies to Jerusalem at this time. He camps out just outside of Jerusalem, at which point he is murdered. He is killed. He then raises from the dead and then just walks to the temple that he helped build three and a half years earlier. Everybody is like, did that guy just rise from the dead? I saw him get killed, uh, in this, you know, apparent victory. Now, now there's an actual Jewish, uh, um, story about how this actually happens. They believe that there's two Messiahs, Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. They believe Messiah ben Joseph is the guy that this is odd enough, right? That, that they believe that the Messiah ben is Daniel eleven forty through 45 is actually about the Messiah. They, they understand that this is a person attacking the Muslim world, their mortal enemies, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. They understand that. So when they read this, they see this guy as a good guy. This guy in Daniel eleven forty 40 through 45, they don't see as the Antichrist. They say this is a prophecy about Messiah ben Joseph. They also understand that Ms. Messiah ben Joseph will apparently be killed. They understand he must be resurrected. So they have another Messiah, Messiah ben David, who will then at this point come out, he will resurrect Messiah ben Joseph. And then the beginning of the extirpation of those who do not uh, or won't follow this, the Messiah. Or I go through all that in my book, False Christ. It, I'm not saying that in the same way, I don't think anything about Jewish uh, eschatology anymore than I think about Islamic eschatology. It's, it's man-made. It's from different things. It's people's interpretations of things. I don't put any stock in any of that stuff. Uh, And I go through it specifically with regard to Islamic eschatology in my book. Uh, Again, all my books are for free on the website, BibleProphecyText.com. You can read them all in HTML format. It's nicely put out there. You can copy and paste it and do all kinds of things with it. Anyway, I am rambling. It is now at an hour. Thank you for hanging on if you did. I am impressed if you were able to make it through this. Uh, I think I got everything I wanted to say. Go to the website, BibleProphecyTaught.com.